If you please turn your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We're going to be looking at two chapters today, verses, or chapters 13 and 14. That's found on pages 576 through 578 in uh, your pew Bible. So I'm not going to read the entire passage, but we are going to, to go through much of this. So you're going to want to have your, your Bibles open. I'm only going to read the first three uh, verses of chapter 13. And just to give a little background, now we see a shift in the book of Isaiah. For the first 12 chapters that we looked at, Isaiah had been addressing the people of Judah. He'd been focusing on the sin and the covenant unfaithfulness of God's people. And in these first 12 chapters, we saw the same pattern over and over. This pattern is, first, Isaiah confronts them for the sins. Remember I said he's like a prosecuting attorney. He is confronting the people on their covenant unfaithfulness. And second, then, Isaiah gives a prophecy of the judgment that their sins deserve. And third, then, we see Isaiah gives them a picture of God's grace. He gives, them, he gives these images of God's grace, and they all basically point to the same thing. They all point to the Messiah. They all point to Christ. In fact, in this section, 1 through 12, we see some of the clearest and uh, most direct prophecies about Christ, both in his first coming and the second coming. But starting in chapter 13, where we are today, and going on for the next 10 or 11 chapters, the focus shifts. It shifts from God's people to the judgment of the nations, to the people surrounding, the nations surrounding Israel and Judah, and often the people who are opposing, who are, who are oppressing Israel and Judah. So there's a couple of things we want to keep in mind as we, we study. It's not only just today, but over the next few weeks about these prophecies against the nations. The first thing we want to keep in mind is that although these prophecies are about these specific nations, they're not given to these nations. These prophecies are given to God's people. And the purpose of these prophecies is not to warn the nations. It's not to call them to repentance as the purpose that was of the prophecies given against Judah. The purpose of these chapters are to comfort God's people, comfort them as they are experiencing injustice, as they are experiencing persecution at the hands of these godless nations. So that's the first thing. The second thing we want to keep in mind is to notice that Isaiah is writing these prophecies during the reigns of King Ahaz and Hezekiah. And during these times, remember the, the, the main threat facing people, the immediate threat facing these people was the nation of Assyria. They were under siege from Assyria. But Isaiah here is looking long past this immediate threat of the Assyrians. And as we'll see today, Isaiah is actually prophesying about Babylon. This is a nation that's not even really a world power at the time. And he's looking past Assyria, looking to Babylon, looking actually to the fall of Babylon. This is a prophecy that wouldn't take place for another 150 years after his death. So that's the second thing. The third thing we need to keep in mind that not only does the, the time frame shift, and we've seen this a lot so far in our study of Isaiah. Remember, he'll go from talking about contemporary issues uh, with King Ahaz and, and the Assyrians to events concerning the exile to Babylon, the return from the exile to Babylon, hundreds of years in the future. And then he goes even further into the future, the times of Christ and the first coming of Christ, 700 years in the future. And then he's talking about events that we are actually experiencing now, experience today, 2,700 years in the future. And then he also looks even further in the future to the return of Christ. So that this time frame is, is, is very fluid. But not only is the time frame fluid, the judgments itself and the events portrayed here are fluid as well. And what I mean is, is, is we'll see 
this related to the scale of judgment that we read. See, some of the verses clearly speak about judgment on physical Babylon. Uh, judgment that took place in space and time. And we can compare these prophecies to what we know from history. What we read in other uh, scriptures. And they're so accurate that many secular and liberal scholars say these could not have been written by Isaiah. They must have been written after the fact. But then there are other verses that clearly cannot refer to Babylon. These verses are cosmic in, spo- in, in scope. They, they speak about the sun going dark, the moon not shining, the, the heavens shaking. These things have not taken place. These have not happened in history. And here we see spiritual Babylon. Here we see universal Babylon. Uh, and, and what Babylon basically represents here is those systems, uh, those cities and, and governments and powers and institutions that oppose God, that oppose God's people. And we've seen these systems throughout history. We see them today. And we will see them all the way till the time that Christ's return. So keep those three things in mind today, but also as we go forward uh, in the next couple of weeks looking at these, these chapters. So Isaiah chapter 13, I'm going to read the first three verses. Hear now the word of the Lord. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw, on a bare hill raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exalted ones. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. But we know that your word will mean nothing to us. We cannot understand it. We are dull. We cannot hear it. I cannot adequately preach it without your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Father, for a mighty outpouring of your Holy Spirit on me, on my words, on all of us here in the congregation. Open our ears to hear the message that you have from this text to us. Father, I pray that we will uh, be confronted where we need to be confronted. We will be comforted where we need comfort. But above all, that we will see Christ. We will see his glory, and we will cling to him. We pray it in his name. Amen. I'm going to jump right in here. Chapter 13, and I'm going, to, I'm going to be looking at a lot of scripture, we're going to be fast, so just try, try to, to, to focus and, and hold on as we're going through this. Chapter 13, verse 1, starts with this oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. And this start is very important because this verse explicitly tells us that Isaiah is the one who was given this oracle. Isaiah is the one who is prophesying. And it's the same Isaiah that has written the entire book, the son of Amos, He is the one who prophesied during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And why is this important? This is important because the events described here take place long after Isaiah's death. Long after, as I mentioned, 150 years after his death. Verse 17, Isaiah mentions specifically the Medes being stirred up against Babylon. Well, we know from history, we know from the book of Daniel, that ancient Babylon did in fact fall to the Medes, to the Persian, the, the Medo-Persian Empire. And we can read about this in, in Daniel chapter 5. And you remember we talked about this a couple of years ago. We went through the book of Daniel. Uh, Babylon's king, Belshazzar, he is having this, this wild feast. And he's got his, all his concubines and his wives and his nobles there. And he's, there's a lot of drinking going on. And he calls for the vessels coming from the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had removed from the temple of God. And he profanes these, these uh, vessels by drinking in them and, and making toasts to their God. And you know what immediately happens? Remember from, uh, from Daniel 5? 
there's a disembodied hand writing on the wall, basically saying, this very night, will be, you will die. And at that very night, we know from history that Babylon fell to the Persians. So that's what they're talking about. We, and uh, it's really easy for us to miss just how amazing this prophecy is, because this prophecy is coming 150 years before. See, Babylon is not even a world power at the time, and Medes are nothing at all. They're, 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 they're a, a, just a, a second-rate kingdom. And let me just kind of to give you a modern example to put this in, into, into um, perspective to see how amazing this prophecy is. Think about, you know, we're all familiar with, with Ukraine. Right now there's a war in Ukraine. And what's the major threat to the Ukrainians? It's Russia. Russia is the major U- uh, threat to them. But what if a prophecy was given to the Ukrainians and saying that you don't have to worry about Russia. They're, they're not going to be anything. It's India. India is the one who's going to come and take over you. Now, India is a major power, but not the same scale as Russia. And even more than that, you say, don't worry about the Indians. They're going to fall to, to Bangladesh. I mean, that's not even a world power. No one would have thought that in 200 years, Bangladesh is going to be a superpower. This is the type of, this is the, the scale of what we're seeing in this prophecy that, that Isaiah is giving. Verses 2 and 3 make it clear where this judgment is coming from. The destruction of Babylon that, they fa- that Babylon will face is coming from the Lord. The Lord God, he is the one who is doing. He is the one who is raising a signal. The Lord has summoned these nations against Babylon to execute his judgment. Verse 3, the Lord says, I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exalted ones. And the consecrated ones here, this, doesn't, this does not apply that these are God's people executing this decree. This is not people who know the Lord. Far from it. Rather, just as Babylon was used by the Lord as a tool to discipline God's people, to discipline Judah for God's purposes, God now is using all these pagan armies to punish Babylon. Verses 4 and 5, we see the Lord calling this army to battle. It says, The sound of tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms. The nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. See, it's the Lord. The Lord is controlling the scene. He's the one who's bringing the destruction. See, these armies, and these armies are, are freely acting. They're, they're not being forced. They're not being compelled. They're acting according to their own sinful self-interest. But nevertheless, they are still simply the weapons in the hands of the Lord. But notice at the end of, of verse 4, it says the host, the Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. See, this wording here doesn't refer to a, a human army. It refers to the heavenly host, the heavenly army. This indicates that not only is there a physical army carrying out the Lord's sovereign will, but simultaneously there is an angelic host executing the Lord's will in the spiritual realm. See, much of what we experience in the physical realm, it's simply the outward manifestation of spiritual battles. And that's why as a Christian, as Christians, if we focus on the spiritual realm, if we focus on the Lord, the vertical dimension, and being right with the Lord, and focusing on the Lord in prayer with the Lord, and much of our physical concerns will be resolved. It's not that we ignore them. It's that we understand them. The Lord directs us where to act, where to work. If we're focused on him, 
But if we so focus solely on the, the physical and ignoring the, the spiritual, we'll find out that we don't have leverage, that we'll, we're not effective uh, to affect change in the physical realm. So the bottom line, for the Christian, in any situation, our most effective weapon, regardless of what we face, our most effective weapon is prayer. Because when we're in prayer, we are tapping into that spiritual realm. We're tapping into the Lord. We're, we're understanding his wisdom. We're seeing things from his perspective. And he is directing us. And he is, his power is then unleashed in us. That is why prayer, again, is essential. It is not the only thing we can do. It is the most important thing that we can do. You can also see how this would be comforting to God's people. God's people who, at this point, are utterly helpless. They are utterly at the mercy of their captives. The people were probably reading this while they were in captivity and being comforted. Now, they got to this point. Why? Because they focused solely on the physical. They focused solely on the practical. Remember King Ahaz. He didn't trust the prophecy. He didn't trust the Lord. He looked to his own cunning, his own skill, and he made an alliance with Assyria, thinking that would save him. And in fact, that's what caused his problem. So you can see that they, they have abandoned faithfulness to their covenant God. And you know the history of the Babylonian um, conquest and exile, the, the book of Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations, they describe in detail the horror of the fall of Jerusalem. The people faced starvation. Uh, to the point where they resorted to cannibalism, to the point of, of, of mothers eating their own children. This is the horror that, it, that we saw at the fall of Jerusalem, that, that we know from history. And after the fall of Jerusalem, God's people then are, are forcefully removed from their land. Uh, they're, they're, taken, they're, they're relocated to pagan Babylon, where they're, where they're faced uh, misery and, and harsh treatment. And, and, and there was an immense pressure for them to compromise, to abandon their faith, to abandon their identity as God's people. And this prophecy reminds them that although they are helpless, although they are weak, their covenant-keeping God is not helpless. He is not weak. He can and he will deliver them. In verses 6 through 8, we read of this great reversal that takes place. The conquerors now are the ones who are being conquered. And it gives a graphic portrayal of the horrors they will face. It says, Well, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty will, it will come. Therefore all hands will be feeble, and every heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. See, this will be a time of great weeping, great wailing. See, these mighty Babylonians, they're going to be weak. They're going to be feeble. Their hearts are going to be melting in fear. And they're going to be filled with pain. They're going to be filled with anguish and agony. It said this time is compared to a woman in the anguish of labor. And those of you who are mothers who have given birth or, or those of you who have seen a, a woman in labor, you know that being in labor is all-consuming. Women in labor, they cannot think about anything else. They are just focused on getting this baby out of me. That is the only thing. I remember when we were in Lamaze class, they, they, they taught us about these breathing exercises. And they said, you'll bring a, like a stuffed animal that could be a, a point of, of focus to distract you from the pain. But any of you who have had babies, you know when that time comes, you're not looking at a little stuffed animal and this little, who's not going to do it for you. you, you all you're focused on is getting, just riding this out, getting this baby out. And that's, that, that's what this time is being compared to. They're not going to be, they're not going to be able to distract, they're not going to be able to focus on anything. It's going to be so intense that it's going to be all-consuming. And that's what the, the, the prophecy that, that Isaiah is prophesying here about Babylon. 
So, so far, this chapter is speaking about the destruction of physical Babylon. We see God providentially directing the physical pagan armies against the physical pagan Babylon. But the scope changes in the next five verses. In verses 9 through 13, we see that Isaiah is no longer talking about physical Babylon. He's not just using poetic language. He's not just using hyperbole. I think it's much more than this. In this section, we see images of cosmic upheaval. We see cosmic judgment. Uh, this, is, this looks like the book of Joel, the book of Revelation, or like uh, Nathan read for us in the, in the book of Mark. Uh, it, it seems much bigger, uh, bigger than a city, even bigger than an empire. And, and here we see the shift from referring to the specific physical city of Babylon to a reference to the universal or the spiritual Babylon. And this universal or spiritual Babylon, these are those physical and and spiritual forces that we've seen throughout history that oppose God, that oppose his people. And Babylon here is a type, is a type pointing to all of those who oppose God. And Babylon has always been a type. All the way back in Genesis 11, this is where we first see Babylon. In Genesis 11, it's called Babel, as in the Tower of Babel. And you know the story of the Tower of Babel. The people on their own, they wanted to build this mighty tower so that they can reach God, so they would no longer need God, so that they would be God themselves. They would have the power of God. And this was their sin. This was their sin, that they had this desire to be God. And my friends, this is the the universal sin of all spiritual, uh, of all fallen men, of all of spiritual Babylon. This is the sin of all those who oppose God. This is the desire to be God. We call it works righteousness, to earn my salvation, to do it my way, to be the one who is my own God. And we see this all the time, don't we? We see it all the time today. We see it everywhere. This is the essence of spiritual Babylon. I can be my own God. I can do it my way. It's all up to me. I'm autonomous. I answer to nobody. You can't oppose your morality on me. Or nowadays we hear it, it's my body, my choice. This is spiritual Babylon. And spiritual Babylon is as much alive today in our American culture as it was 2,500 years ago in Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. And here's the really scary thing. These verses, verses 9 through 13, they apply to us. They apply to us. Their prophecy is much against our culture as they were against ancient Babylon. And here are these words in verses 9 through 13 that speak to us as a prophecy, again, against our culture. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant, and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold." and mankind in the gold of Orpha. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. These are, these are hard judgments, hard words that we're reading. These judgments are, are final. They are comprehensive. And, and notice there's no place to hide from these judgments. There's no safety for God's enemy. There will be no place unaffected by God's wrath. Verse 10 seems to describe some type of environmental disaster. It says the stars and the sun and the moon will give no light. 
And, and this, you know, this could be just speculating. It could be the results of a massive volcanic eruption where, where there's ash all throughout the, 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 the atmosphere and it blocks out all light, literally all light from, from reaching the Earth's surface. And it's just think about that. The results of this would be catastrophic. It would affect the entire planet. There would be no place to hide. There would be no place that's safe, no place to escape. The loss of life would be unimaginable. And I think that's what verse 12 hints at here, where it says, I will make the people more rare than fine gold. Gold is valuable. Why? Gold is valuable because gold is rare. But in that day, people will be even more rare than gold. And while I believe uh, this will be a literal and a, a physical final judgment, I believe we're seeing, at this moment, I believe we are seeing a partial and a spiritual fulfillment of this judgment. Again, at this very moment. See, light and dark, light and dark can speak about spiritual light, spiritual knowledge of God. Light comes from Him. And part of this judgment, a part I believe that our, as a culture we are experiencing at this very moment, is that God has removed His common grace light from our culture. So we no longer recognize God. We no longer recognize his word. We no longer recognize the moving of his spirit, even in the church. His speaking through scripture, his speaking through providence. See, our culture for the most part, and this includes many in the church, is for the most part blind to God. And life and light, wisdom and knowledge all come from God. And when we are blind to him, basically we are cut off from this, this knowledge, this life, this, and, and it causes us to increase in our blindness and basically to drift further and further and further away from God, all to our judgments. Is not verse 11 the perfect description of our culture? I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. See, not only are we full of evil and iniquity, which means we, we act, we think, we love that which opposes God and opposes his word. Not only are we objectively guilty, but we're also filled with arrogance and pride about this. We are proud of our evil. There's, there's absolutely no humility in us. And worse than this, our culture is so full of pride and sin that we have completely turned around the idea, the definition of pride and humility. See, biblical humility, biblical humility is to have no trust in myself, to recognize that I am frail, that I am feeble, that I am sinful, recognizing that my desires and my thinking are falling and cannot be trusted. I cannot be trusted to define truth. I cannot be trusted to define reality. I must look outside myself to know what is true, to know what is real. I must look to God. I must look to his word. But our culture, our culture says, Trusting in scripture, trusting that there is actually even an absolute truth, that is the thing that is arrogant. Trusting that there's absolute truth, that is arrogance. They believe true humility, again, according to this fallen world, questions everything outside ourselves. But ourselves, we're the standard. We're the things that are not questioned. We don't question our feelings. Our culture sees feelings really as the only thing that's unexaminable, unquestionable, infallible. See, if I feel like I'm a, a woman trapped in a man's body, then that has to be true, regardless of what biology says, regardless of what scripture says. If I feel attracted to someone who's not my spouse, that's right for me, regardless of the covenant that I have made with my spouse. 
If I feel attracted to someone who's the same sex as I am, then that's right. That's actually to be celebrated. Again, regardless of what biology says, regardless of what scripture says, I am the definition of reality. That is completely throwing it upside down. And you can say, even even by saying this, by most in our world will seem as extremely arrogant and hateful to our culture because we have completely turned humility and arrogance on its head. And for this, we will be judged. And we are currently being judged, judged by God, who does not follow our rules. He does not obey our truth. He defines truth. Verses 14 through the end of chapter 13 appear to be talking about physical Babylon again. And it's a description of the brutality and and the finality of the judgment. In verse 19, Babylon is compared to Sodom and Gomorrah. Babylon will be utterly destroyed, just as these two wicked cities that we read about in Genesis were utterly destroyed. Verses 20 through 22 describe how Babylon will be uninhabited, that wild animals will take over uh, this once most powerful and most glorious city. Remember, this is where the hanging gardens of Babylon were, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Well, today, you know what Babylon is today? Today, Babylon is uninhabited. It's, about, it's in the middle of the desert, about 60 miles south of Baghdad in Iraq. It is a desert wasteland, wasteland in fulfillment of this prophecy Isaiah made 2,700 years ago. And before we leave chapter 13 and move to chapter 14, I, I want to I look at one specific verse that might raise some questions. And it's one that unbelievers often use to, to blaspheme God. God's character and say that God is immoral compared to to our modern enlightened understanding of morality. I actually saw one person say, don't ask if it's biblical, because biblical is dashing babies to pieces. And that's this verse 16. It says, their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives will be ravished. And we look at that and say, how could that be the Bible? We rightfully understand the abhorrence of this verse and these actions. We rightly understand that that brutally destroying the life of a helpless baby and brutally raping a woman, this is utterly evil. Everyone should understand that. My question is, how do we know this is evil? Right? How do we know that these actions are evil? The moral outrage of these actions only makes sense if there is a God. See, the real evil of these actions is that they are assault on the dignity of the image of God. That's the reason why these these are evil. If there is no God, if, if, if we're just cosmic accents, why is that evil? Why is one action any more evil than the other? It makes no sense. Only if there is a God does it make sense. And we need to understand God is not doing these actions. God is not commanding these actions. Now, God is permitting them, but they are being committed by sinful men. And these actions are opposed by God. And God will judge the people. They will be punished for this. These actions oppose his holy character. Now, you may say, well, well, if God can stop it, and he does, if he has the power to stop it, this means God is complicit. God is responsible. Not at all. See, God allows this evil for a purpose. God uses sin sinlessly. And you may say, well, I can't see. There can never be a, a good purpose for, for, for dashing babies to pieces and, and ravishing wives. There's no, there's no way there could be anything worth doing these atrocities. And that may be the case. I can't see any good reason. But I'm not God. And don't you see how arrogant it is to say, just because I can't see a good reason, there cannot be one. God must be immoral because I can't understand. You see, we're putting ourselves above God. We're saying, if I can't understand it, then God must be immoral. 
My friends, everything God does is righteous. Everything God does is good. It is impossible, impossible for God to do anything that is evil, to sin, to do anything that's immoral. <clears throat> so this conclusion has to be false. But again, you see our arrogance of our, of our fallen nature. We put our fallen judgment above God and saying that God's goodness is, is, is called in question because I can't understand why God is doing something. And before we're so quick to judge God, which we often do, don't we as individuals and as a culture rationalize this same kind of evil? Yeah, dashing infants to pieces is immoral. But what if that infant is in the womb? What if he's inconvenient to his mother? Then we can medically or chemically dismember this infant for the higher cause of what we call women's health care. We know rape is immoral, except when the man is powerful and the woman is a nobody or a prostitute. And this evil must be covered up to prevent embarrassment or damage to our organization, as we often see in the case of politics or business or even in churches where this type of evil is covered up. So before we're so quick to judge God, why don't we look at what we do ourselves? Now what we're seeing this first, this dashing of babies and ravishing of wives, is the Babylonians getting a taste of their own medicine. They are getting done to them exactly what they did to others. They are getting basically eye-for-eye eye justice. And it's, it's a hard verse, and we may not completely understand it, but we know for certain that God is not commanding these actions. God is not commending these actions, and God is not immoral for permitting these actions. He has a purpose for it. We can trust that. Let's now turn to, to, to chapter 14. In the first two verses of chapter 14, in, in the midst of the prophetic judgment against God's enemy and the enemy of his people, the Lord now gives comfort. He gives encouragement to his people. Verse 1 says, For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob, will have compassion on his covenant people, and will again choose Israel, and will set them in their own land, and sojourners will join them, and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And here we see God's promise to restore God's people to their original place, to their original call. See, Israel was, was given land. They were given the, the call to be a light to the nations. They were to show God to the nations. And these sojourners that we read about here who are joining and attaching themselves to the house of Jacob, what they are doing is they are attaching themselves to the God of Jacob. See, this is a prefiguring of God's grace going beyond the people of Israel, going out to the Gentiles through Christ and through the gospel of grace. And this is a picture of God's grace going to all the nations. But it's not only just grace that we see here, we also see judgment. In verse 2, we have a picture of God's judgment on the nations. It says, And the people will take them and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. See, this is a picture that all people, all nations will one day bow to the God of Jacob. We will one day bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the people will either do it voluntarily, willfully, joyfully, as we see in these sojourners who attach themselves to the God of Jacob, or they will bow unwillingly, forcefully, those who will be captives and slaves. But all will bow. This next longer section of chapter 14, verses 3 through 21, this is a taunt. This is a taunt against the king of Babylon. And this is a prophecy, of again, of the great reversal that we've seen. The oppressors will themselves be oppressed. 
Again, this prophecy will, would have been a great encouragement to those who are exiles, those who are suffering at that moment under the hardship in Babylon. Verses 3 and 4 says, When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the, the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. And for the second half of verse 4 through verse 21, this is where we see the taunt. And it basically highlights how it is the Lord is the one. The Lord is the one who has turned the tables on Babylon, on their king. Verse 4b through 6. How the oppressor has ceased. The insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of his rulers. And notice it, it describes the reversal of those that struck the people in wrath with unceasing blows. That's Babylon. That ruled the nations in anger, with unrelenting persecution. That was Babylon. And the power, this power that they had to, to inflict cruelty on not just Israel, but on all of their, all of their captors, it has been cut short. And it's been cut short by the Lord. He's done this. And as people taunt them, he, 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 they taunt their former oppressors because of this fact. The next few verses personify the creation and tell in poetic form of the creation actually rejoicing that God has removed this evil from their presence, this evil that oppressed even the land and the forests. We see this in verses 7 and 8. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you. The cedars of Lebanon saying, Since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. See, these verses imply that Babylonians, they were, they were just abusing the creation. They were, take, they were not wise stewards of the natural resources. They cut down and laid waste to these forests for their building projects. And, and this is really an illustration of Proverbs 29.2, which says, When the righteous increase, the people, or even the land, rejoices. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. And even the, 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 even the creation is groaning when the wicked are in charge. Verses 9 through 11 here lend voices to the dead. And the dead now join the taunt of Babylon. And these are not actual words of the dead, but rather the taunt is equating the helplessness that Babylon will face with those who have gone to Sheol, which is the, the dwelling place of the dead. It says, Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shade to greet you. All who were leaders of the earth, it raises from their thrones. All who were kings of nations, all of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol. The sound of your harps, maggots are laid as your bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. See, the Babylonians and the Babylonian king, they have become like a rotting corpse. They have become covered in maggots. Verses 12 and following. While this is certainly applicable to the king of Babylon, and, and, uh, but I, I think it really is, is representative of all those who oppose God. In fact, this is, I think, the, the very epitome of what it looks like to rebel against God. And many see these verses as actually speaking about Satan himself. Uh, verse 12, uh, what the ESV translates as a day star. The King James, if you have a King James version, it actually refers to Lucifer, which is a name given to the devil. This comes from the Latin Vulgate translation of the day star. Now, whether or not these verses speak of the actual fall of the devil, they do describe, I think, this satanic disposition found in our adversary and really found in, in all of the demonic followers. 
Take a look at 12 through 20. It says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are to cut down, how you are cut down to the ground, you who are laid, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. That's satanic. But it says, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the, fa- to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let its prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out, away from your grave, like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword, who go down to the stones in the pit, like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial, because you have destroyed your land, you have slain your people. And here we see satanic pride. Satanic pride that seeks to be God, that seeks to be above God. The same pride, this same pride that we read here exists in every heart. Every heart of a fallen human being, even Christians. This is in our heart. But God will not allow this pride to stand. And just like he did with the the king of Babylon, just like he did with Satan, just like he does with everyone who exalts themselves above God, God will humble them. God will bring them down. And one of the reasons that God tears them down is so they can no longer continue to corrupt his good creation. And I think this is what we see in the second part of verse 20 and verse 21. He says, May the offspring of evildoers never more be named. Prepare slaughter for the sons because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. And these verses may shock us. Would God really slaughter sons because of the guilt of their fathers? That just seems wrong to us. But we see the reason in verse 21. The reason why is lest they rise, these sons, and possess the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. Basically fill the world with that same evil. They are slaughtered so that they do not further propagate the wickedness of their fathers, the wickedness of this fallen world. See, their their, their evil is like a cancer, and it must be stopped. It must be killed before it can replicate and further distribute death to more and more people. So they must be slaughtered. And this slaughter slaughter can take place in one of two ways, but it's going to be one or the other. The first is a physical slaughter. The first means that they are destroyed. And this is what happened to ancient Babylon. This is what will happen to spiritual Babylon. This is what will happen to all those who oppose God and his people. They will be destroyed. Eternally destroyed in the lake of fire. In fact, this is the whole reason that hell exists and the lake of fire exists. You can think of hell as a place of quarantine. It's a place where those who refuse to submit to God, those who constantly reject his holiness, his goodness, his righteousness. It's where they will be kept away from polluting God's perfect and new and holy creation. In Revelation 21, this describes the new heavens and the new earth. This is our eternal home. Verse 8 tells us that not everyone going to this destination is welcome. Not everyone will be there. Revelation 21.8 says, But as for the cowardly, 
the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Just think about it, all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. See, this is the fate. This is the fate of all those who oppose God. This is the fate of Satan. This is the fate of the fallen angels. This is the fate of fallen man. This is the natural fate of every single one of us. Every single person ever born other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This was our natural and our eternal destiny. The lake of fire with eternal torment. Yes, all the sons will be slaughtered to prevent the propagation of the father's evil. Eternal destruction is just one way. But thankfully, thanks be to God, there is also another way. And that second way is that they are still slaughtered. But we are still slaughtered. But we are slaughtered in Christ. The second way is to be united to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then as we are united to him, we die with Christ. And when we die with him, we are also raised with him. Romans 6, 8 through 11 says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then, then when we die to ourselves, when we are united to Christ, we will then die to ourselves. We will die to sin. We will no longer be rebels against God. We will no longer be God's enemies. We become his beloved children, living only for him. And my friends, there are only two options. There are only two options. We are either in Christ and have peace with God, or we are still in our sins and we are enemies with God. And if we are enemies with God, we are then part of spiritual Babylon. And if we are part of spiritual Babylon, then the judges, the, the, the judgments proclaimed in these two chapters, the horrors described in the book of Revelations, my friends, those apply to you. If you are an enemy, if you are not in Christ, this applies to you. Your fate, your destiny is the lake of fire. But my friends, it does not have to be that way. There is still time. Now there is the time of grace. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And now is the time to come to Christ. Now is the time to call upon him. Scripture says all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And I pray, I pray that if there are any here who have not, are not united to Christ, any who hear my voice, any on the, the live stream, that that will change now. That that will change at this very moment. And for those of us who are already born again, those of us who are called upon the name of the Lord, those of us who are united to Christ by faith, let these chapters give you comfort. Let these chapters give you peace. Because the bottom line of these, these two chapters that I've read and this 45 minutes that we've been looking, the bottom line is God wins. That's the bottom line is God wins. And if you are united to Christ, that means you win. If I'm united to Christ, I win. My friends, cling to this truth. No matter what obstacles you face, no matter what oppositions you face from spiritual Babylon, whether it be in human or demonic form, human or demonic oppression, cling to this truth. Remember, God can and God will one day set all things right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are disturbing words. But it's clear, it's true, that there are only two paths. We are either in Christ or we are in Adam. And if we are in Adam, we are part of spiritual Babylon. There is no neutrality. There is no, I, I, I'm, I, I'm okay with God, but 
but I'm not in Christ. No, you are either for God or are you against God. And I pray, Lord, I pray that there are any who hear my voice that are not in Christ, that that will change at this moment. They will call upon the name of the Lord and be saved from this. And I pray for the rest of us, Lord, that we will focus, we will trust in Christ, and we will proclaim, we will go out, we will take the initiative and proclaim your goodness, your grace to all we come into contact with. I pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.